0: And welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper.
1: And I am the other host, Aaron Matic. How's it going? It's going well. Busy, busy week. A lot going on in the world. too. we're going to get world. into it while well, we can this week. And this while week, we so. still
0: can. Yeah. Do you watch the State of the Union? No. All right. It's okay. Did you? Yes. I live streamed it, had a, a little show about it on the Katie Halper show. It was a, uh, played a drinking game. It was a, uh, but well, we'll get into it because it's part of my um, one of my food groups and it's part of our Thursday Throwdown. So you're definitely going to want to become Substack uh, subscribers so you can access this Thursday Throwdown. Uh, We have some real gems for you behind that paywall. But of course, we have a lot of gems in front of the paywall.
1: That's right. But those gems, if you want to get them, are usefulidiots.substack.com, your one-stop shop for useful idiots gems.
0: Yeah, uncut gems. Yeah, uncut gems. Yeah, great movie.
1: All right, so let's get to our four basic food groups. And I have Democrats suck. And for Democrats suck this week, I'm gonna talk about their approach to the earthquake in Syria, which uh, along with Turkey, the death toll is in the thousands. And now the U.S. is in a policy situation where it's official U.S. policy to block aid to Syria because of sanctions. So official U.S. policy in Syria is to deny aid because of crippling sanctions. And even in the face of this disaster, the U.S. is not willing to lift those sanctions. So first, let's go to Antony Blinken expressing what he calls his solidarity with the Syrian people. This is what he says. The U.S. expresses our deepest condolences for the tragic loss of life in Turkey and Syria from today's earthquakes. Our initial assistance response to our ally Turkey is underway and we stand ready to provide aid directly to the Syrian people. No, Antony Blinken, you do not, because your official policy is to impose sanctions that block aid to the Syrian people. And this is the New York Times making this very plain. So the Times notes accurately, quote, Syria is not able to receive direct aid from many countries because of sanctions. And those sanctions are led by the U.S., which basically has imposed a policy of sanctioning anybody, not just Syrians, who try to engage in economic reconstruction inside of Syria after a decade of war. And here is a now senior Biden administration official named Dana Struhl. She now works for the Pentagon and oversees Middle East policy there, including in Syria, making this plane in 2019, where she explained that most of Syria is rubble, and that the U.S. can prevent reconstruction.
2: The rest of Syria, though, is is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, And that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argued that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line On preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into syria
0: the u.s has blood i mean not surprisingly as it always does has blood on its hands while claiming to care about humanitarian issues
1: that's a top biden official back in 2019 bragging that most of syria is rubble and the u.s can keep it that way and fast forward to 2023 there's now more rubble from this earthquake and official u.s policy is to prevent aid that can help Syria's reconstruction. And Ned Price, who is the uh, State Department spokesperson, was asked about this by journalist Saeed Erekat, who was with Al Quds Daily. And Saeed Erekat questioned Ned Price about the US policy of preventing aid to Syria via sanctions.
3: At the border, Saeed, uh, we uh, are determined to do what we can to address the humanitarian needs of the Syrian people. We've done that over the course of the 12-year civil war to the tune of billions of dollars. We do that through a different process. In Turkey, we have a partner in the government. Uh, In Syria, we have a partner in the form of NGOs on the ground who are providing humanitarian support.
4: Well, you know, let me just follow up on this, because the Syrian government, as far as I know, it's a government that you still recognize. You have never unrecognized the Syrian government. So why not reach out to the Syrian government? They are in power. They're the ones that run these rescue operations or aid operations, and so on. it would be a great gesture. Another gesture would be to sort of lift the sanctions that have basically, you know, suffocated Syria. Uh,
3: Said, um, and I'm going to resist the temptation to uh, to go into your advocacy rather rather than uh, questioning. But I, I will I will make the point uh, that uh, it would be uh, quite ironic, uh, if not even counterproductive for us to reach out to a government that has brutalized its people over the course of a dozen years now, gassing them, slaughtering them, being responsible for much of the suffering that they've endured. Uh, Instead, we have humanitarian partners on the ground who can provide the type of assistance in the aftermath of these tragic earthquakes, but uh, these humanitarian partners who have been active on the ground since the earliest days Uh, of the civil war. This is a regime, Saeed, that uh, has never shown any inclination uh, to put the welfare, the well-being, the interests of its people first. Now that its people are suffering even more, we're going to continue doing what has proven effective uh, over the course of the past dozen years or so providing significant amounts of humanitarian assistance to partners on the ground. These partners who, unlike the Syrian regime, are there to help the people rather than brutalize them.
0: So you had Saeed Arakat, and now you're going to hear from Al-Quds, and now you're going to hear from Matt Lee from AP. And what's interesting is that these two journalists are probably the consistently the only remotely adversarial voices that you hear from uh, at these press conferences. So let's hear what uh, he has to say. And I apologize for missing the call. How do
3: I think it would be ironic To use this as an opportunity to reach out to a to a regime that has brutalized its people when its people are in an even more dire uh situation.
5: Okay.
0: Well, all right. Maybe I'm not <clears throat> maybe my uh understanding of the word irony is
1: a little bit different.
0: So Matt Lee is rightly pushing back on why it would be ironic to actually help the people of Syria. Also, uh Ned Price says that it, what they've been doing has been productive over the last 12 years i wonder what he means by productive producing what and what have they been productive
1: well what he means is that the u.s has spent billions of dollars on syria but instead of helping people it's destroyed the country this is the u.s on syria authorized the, one of the most expensive covert programs in the cia's history uh which was to arm sectarian death squads that were fighting the syrian government And that has left Syria in ruins. And now, with Syria largely rubble, and now facing even more rubble because of an earthquake, the U.S. response is to put sanctions on Syria and claim that it's doing so in response to Syrian human rights abuses. What it omits is that all this violence in Syria resulted from the Syrian government defending itself from a dirty war, from the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar, uh, the U.K., spending billions and billions of dollars arming one of the most well-armed insurgencies in history. And so Syria fought back with the help of Russia and Iran, and that has led to massive death and suffering inside Syria. So he admits the part where the U.S. played a role in all of the carnage inside Syria, because we're not still not allowed to acknowledge one of the most expensive covert programs in CIA history. And he, when he refers to our partners on the ground providing aid, he's talking about groups like the White Helmets, which, as I've reported on, we don't have to get into here, but they basically work hand-in-glove with Sectarian death squads. Uh, when Al-Qaeda took over the province of Idlib, White Helmets members were celebrating with them. Um, a leader of Al-Qaeda in Syria described the White Helmets as hidden soldiers of the Mujahideen. So the people that Ned Price is praising here as humanitarians are actually the Mujahideen, uh, the, uh, the people who are in Al-Qaeda. And that was made plain by Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, who 10 years ago wrote an email to Hillary Clinton saying that Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. So in Syria, the U.S. is on the side of Al-Qaeda, not on the side of the Syrian people who it's denying aid to and now reconstruction aid to in the aftermath of an earthquake. So anyway, that's a long-winded version of Democrats suck, but it's very important to bring out because this is a disaster and the U.S. is seriously exacerbating it. Just to give one example, just to give one example, this is a journalist uh, based in Germany And he tried to fundraise for Syria. He raised 10,000 euros on GoFundMe. And check out what he said. So GoFundMe blocked him from collecting and donating the money he raised for Syria. And he says, we're not even allowed to donate to those in need. And that's because of Western sanctions. Because of Western sanctions, this Syrian exile cannot fundraise donations for his country in a time of crisis. And that is a direct result of Western sanctions on Syria.
0: Couple things that I just want to say in response. One is that note how Ned Price uses the word regime. There's really no definition for regime except for a government with whom we have a, an adversarial relationship. And right. the other issue about language. So what's interesting is Aaron, as you pointed out, the New York Times did point out the relationship between sanctions and aid. But on February 7th, this is what the headline said and the subheadline. The headline said. Uh, the only border crossing for aid between Syria and Turkey is closed. And then the subheadline says Syria is not able to receive direct aid from many countries because of sanctions. So the border crossing has been a lifeline. Now, scroll down and you'll see uh, on February 8th, it had been changed. Now the subheadline reads As the Syrian government tightly controls what aid it allows into opposition held areas, border crossings with Turkey have been a lifeline. So note that wow. difference
1: wow so they acknowledge the truth that u.s sanctions block aid to syria and then when they realized oh wait a second uh this exposes our policy of de- of harming syrians denying them aid we have to water that down that's what they yeah. did
0: and we have that's to shift it. the blame to to the to the syrian re- regime J- uh, jamima pierre was the person who tweeted out those two uh screenshots and she's uh professor uh in the department of african-american studies and anthropology at ucla and former guests
1: it's just so sadistic and we're going to talk more about all of this with our guest this week professor joshua landis and so yeah. that is Democrats suck what do we have for Republicans suck
3: afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls how to refine your mental models and how to think about
0: state of the union response that we saw from certain Republicans. You're gonna enjoy this Aaron, I think. Let's just play this first clip from Biden talking at the State of the Union. You're gonna see the response.
4: Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. (laughs) Let me give you, anybody who
0: doubts it, contact my office.
4: I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal.
0: What we're hearing now is a bunch of Republicans heckling the president. And we see uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene standing up wearing a very bizarre coat. Uh, Go back, Wilson, so we can see the coat. It's kind of like an ice queen, like Cruella de Vil look. It has a big white. It's a white coat with a big fur collar. It's insane looking.
4: I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. They enjoy conversion. You know, it means if if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, "I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant." But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look. Folks, the idea is
0: Again, call that we're, wire. Not
4: gonna be, we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond.
0: Folks. Okay, then there's Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, looking angry that he said it. We'll see why that's relevant in a second.
4: So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the off the books now, right? They're not to be surprised. All right. We got unanimity.
0: So basically what Biden was doing there was he was saying that there are some Republicans who wanted to either advocated uh, outright or floated the idea of sunsetting programs like Social Security. And one of the people who was upset about that was uh, Senator Mike Lee. Now, let's see. Uh, this is a cool video that we have that kind of crosscuts, that contrasts Mike Lee's uh, indignant face while Biden was saying that with a video of Mike Lee saying some interesting things about Social Security.
5: It will be my objective to phase out Social Security. Mm-hmm. To pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. <laughs> pull
0: out Social Security by the roots, and yet he has the audacity to look angry and almost perplexed when Biden calls out Republicans for wanting to uh, phase out Social Security. Now, he's just one of the Republicans who has floated this. Also, Rick Scott and Ron Johnson, those senators have done that as well. But I just think it's it's kind of rich that people are such snowflakes. These right wingers are such snowflakes. They get so offended when Biden is merely calling out something that they've suggested and they're on record for suggesting, but they know it's really unpopular. So now they want to pretend that they're not on record for suggesting it. Now, in my Thursday throwdown, I'm going to make a point about how this is actually, sadly, a moment of Democrats suck, because among the people who have advocated sunsetting Social Security, that list sadly includes Biden. Now, he hasn't done that for a while, but it is in his past something that he refused to recognize during the primary uh, when Bernie Sanders brought it up. And we get into that more in the Thursday throwdown.
1: Yeah, if Republicans were smart, they would point out that Democrats had advocated the same policy, including Biden, um, Obama, when he had that, like, like Simpson-Bowles commission, I think it was, that also pushed the idea of cutting Social Security. Um, Plenty of Democrats have gotten on this before. And so, but Republicans, because uh, they can't fathom possibly actually really defending social security uh they can't put themselves in a position where they criticize democrats for having the same policy as them which is to which is to cut it so
0: but it's just it's just so entitled and disgusting and tantrumy to to call him a liar i mean he is a liar but on this issue to call him a liar like who the hell is marjorie taylor green and what the fuck is she wearing Sorry, I know that's superficial, but what is she wearing? Actually, there's another tweet I got to show. By this is tweeted by Good Politic Guy. Uh, can we just show this this image, Wilson? So uh, this is a tweet that contains a screenshot of Marjorie Taylor Green and Kirsten Cinema, and uh, Good Politic Guy tweets out "Hunger Games" as government, which indeed it does look like that. Again, uh, for people who are not watching and only listening. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is wearing a big white, almost like a shaft, uh, jack, uh, fur coat uh, with the fur collar. And then Kirsten Cinema is wearing a yellow dress with sleeves that are so big, puffy sleeves that I'm sure they got in the way of people seeing the State of the Union. They had to obstruct people's vision. So that's your Republican suck.
1: All right. For Isn't That Weird, let's check in on the world of air travel. And this episode happened aboard a Delta flight.
0: Do it
1: because I will turn this
5: plane back if I you.
3: Don't do do not press my button. <sighs> you got the wrong one today. Well, I have you on video saying, saying
4: my wife
5: has a stupid me. face. So being I, I understand.
1: So the text says a disgruntled Delta passenger tweeted a tense exchange with a flight attendant from November. After she allegedly said his wife had a stupid face for trying to put her bag in the first class overhead bin. While the couple was wrongly removed from the flight, not everyone was on board with their viral story. And someone points out, maybe don't be rude to a flight attendant. This is your fault. And why are you seeking compensation? Bro, it literally says overhead bins are for first class. Can't read instructions. I'm with them. You know, flight attendants have a really hard job. And if they tell you not to put your bag in the first class cabin, I I understand you want to break the class barrier. And I respect that, but you know, you got to respect the flight attendant. And if she said that someone had a stupid face, I mean, there, there are worse things you could say than saying someone has a stupid face. So, I mean, it's, it's mean, but you know, come on. Is that worth, yeah, is that worth sharing over social media and seeking compensation? I don't know.
0: I don't know. I mean, it seems like they're kind of burying the lead, which is that they were kicked off the plane.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, don't question the flight attendant you know and don't try to put your bags where they're not supposed to i mean i i sometimes you know it may you know sometimes if if the if the coat if economy section is is packed which is very often you want to put your bag where there's room and there's room in first class but uh you know i think ultimately you have to defer to the attendant here and uh, because that's a very tough job and if they say something i i think it should be respected
0: Apparently the flight attendant did say that she was from the Bronx time to explain why she told, uh, the, the lady, she had stupid face. Well, fair enough. I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted. I feel like the class stratification that occurs on airplanes is very problematic. And I kind of like the idea of pushing back, uh, against that by putting your bag where it doesn't belong. Uh, but you know what, but
1: but being combative with a working, person in the process you know so like being a class warrior by sure,
0: right no you can't do in a way that's rude we we honestly we don't know we would have had to have witnessed the entire interaction sadly this video only captures the discussion of using the word stupid face yes (laughs) yeah uh they were rebooked on another flight and guess what they got
1: they got first class wow
0: first class seats yeah so maybe this whole thing was a trick
1: yeah yeah All right, what do we have for Isn't That Terrible?
0: So This Isn't That Terrible is a truly terrible story. I'm just going to read it from the New York Post. My kid wore ripped jeans to school. I'm fuming they duct taped her legs. Uh, So this mad mom is taping no prisoners. One mother on TikTok has claimed that her child's school put duct tape over her ripped jeans for violating the dress code. And it's tearing her apart. According to the viral video, which has reached nearly 4 million views since it was published uh, mid-December, uh, user Shanna Drummond 2 has ostensibly filmed herself walking into her child's school and asking an administrator if they thought it was acceptable and part of their policy to place duct tape on her daughter's skin. So let's take a look at this video.
4: Did you think it was acceptable to put duct tape on my daughter's
0: skin? That's a it's the policy to put duct tape on her child's skin? It does look pretty ridiculous, honestly. And I don't I don't think it's the right thing to do, to tape, tape those now, on the other hand, she did violate the dress code, so I don't know what the the right response is. I think it's it's stupid to have a dress code, but uh, what the mom is saying is that the school should have called her if they need her to change her pants. Also, what makes this case that much more complicated is that the daughter has eczema, eczema and sensitive skin.
1: You know, school story is always so tough because everyone has rights, like the kids have rights, right. the teachers obviously have rights. Cause, right. You know, they, they need to have a, an environment that works for them in, in a very stressful job and difficult, right. underpaid job. And the parents have rights, too. And so it's a right. question where it's like all these legitimizes are sometimes in conflict with each right. other. And, right. Uh,
0: I feel like. But I,
1: but I agree, like duct tape on a c- child's skin. Yeah. Right. Can't get on board with
0: that. Right. Yeah. I think. I, I think that's true. I mean, even if you want to send this student home, which may not be advisable, but that at least doesn't violate their like kind of bodily autonomy.
1: But anyway, we're not trying to discourage people who wear duct tape on their clothing for fashion. I mean, that's you know, if, right, if you adult, right, it's about choice. It yeah. It's
0: a bad choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But with kids, it's a little more new nu- it's a little bit more nuanced.
0: Yeah, it is more nuanced. I liked I like our isn't that weird and isn't that terrible today? Both of them raise real kind of moral, um, philosophical debates.
1: Youthful, it's the most nuanced show on YouTube, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Exploring no, all, all, all the different complexities of this complex world.
0: But we have an exciting announcement and producer Matt Wilson is going to fill you in on the details.
3: So from now on, for the absurd arena, we're going to be using the Substack app chat section, which I've recently got started. And Katie and Aaron are going to be in the Substack chat every Tuesday at noon Joining in and the absurd arena discussion board with you. So make sure you get there, and Katie and Aaron will be commenting with you, and you can meet them
1: there every week. You know what this takes me back to is when I was a, a teenager coming home from school and logging onto my parents' computer via like the phone modem. So hearing like the
0: right. <laughs> dial up, you
1: know, like it goes on for like whatever, two minutes. And then you click on the screens and you enter internet relay chat. And I would just spend, you know, after a childhood of you know doing acting and soccer and playing in bands, my, my te- a couple a period of my teenage years became just being on a computer talking with strangers on the internet all around right. the world about my about my favorite bands and and whatever else. And so uh, this Did is you like w- a throwback about for me. your
0: acting career on this chat.
1: I I, I don't recall what I disclosed. Oh. I think I was probably just talking about I don't know like bands I liked. But this this is a good opportunity to uh to. To throw it back. So we look forward yeah. to chatting with you every week on the absurd, yeah. at the Absurd Arena. So this week's guest is Joshua Landis. He is Sandra Mackey, professor of Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, one of the foremost experts in the U.S. on Syria. And that is very important this week as Syria grapples with the aftermath of a devastating earthquake. So let's go to Joshua Landis.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure,
5: pleasure to be with you.
0: Wanted to start off by asking you about the role of sanctions in Syria, kind of generally, but also how they are right now intersecting with the recovery efforts.
5: Let me just take the bull by the horns. The the U.S. administration has said that they that all aid can get through, that sanctions do not affect the aid. And that's technically true, but in fact, it's not true. It's not true for a number of reasons. First of all, the one thing that would make a real difference today, considering the terrible destruction that's taken place in cities like Latakia, Aleppo, right across Syria, is to be able to wire money to your loved ones. Everybody has somebody in Syria that they want to help, and we can't do it. We can't do it because all the SWIFT codes have been blocked. And America has not lifted this. So you can't send money to your mother-in-law or your father or your brother or anybody who's got no house, who needs to rent a place, whatever it is. They need hospital care. So that is a big part of sanctions, is that Syria has been debanked. now.
0: And what are SWIFT codes for for people who don't know?
5: SWIFT code is like your ABA bank routing number on the bottom of your check. You have to, if you're going to wire money, you have to give that because it tells the wiring services which bank you're doing, you're sending the money to your bank account, and then your wiring number. The SWIFT code is the international wiring number, and they all go through a central place. And America, because everything is done with dollars, America can say no SWIFT codes, and they... They've banned this, they've sanctioned people who use those SWIFT codes. So nobody can send money to Syria. Now that's number one issue, but there are many other issues. For example, no ship will land in a Syrian port because the Syrian ports are considered to be terrorist organizations that contribute money to the government, which has been sanctioned. And that means that companies like Lloyd's of London will not insure any boat that goes to Syria and there are only a few big insurers that reinsure all these, you know, tankers and merchant marine ships. None of them will do business. So that means that oil to get to Syria has to go on a government-owned Russian or Iranian ship. And there, there's just not that
1: many of them. And those have been bombed by Israel as well when they've tried, uh, coming from Iran.
5: Right. There's a Wall Street Journal article explaining that over a dozen tankers had been had scuttled because Israel's putting mines on them at the water point, and then they have to go to court port and they can't get through. I don't know whether Israel's doing that today. We don't have further intelligence on that, but there is this there is this, you know, secret war that's going on between Israel and Iran where they're attacking each other's ships and they're trying to hinder all this because Syria, you know Israel has a big interest in trying to starve um Syria and weaken Syria because it's taking Iranian, it's getting Iranian help, military help you know that's that's a major problem so and, and Syria doesn't have any oil you know the second biggest problem after the debanking is oil and fuel nobody i was just talking to my brother-in-law um in Latakia the other day and they don't have enough oil or electricity electricity 1 hour a day but they don't have they have a generator but they can't get oil and and fuel to run a generator. So what they've done is there is a hospital three blocks away and they've wired a wire from the generator of the hospital to their apartment. And they have to buy this by kilowatt hour and it's very expensive, but the hospital gets Oil first, because this the government has a, a very limited amount, and they're, they're funneling it out to people that need it, like hospitals. And so the hospital, in order to generate funds to do its services, sells this to the neighborhood. And that's the way, but that's the way Syria is working today.
1: How does the U.S. military occupation of Syria, uh, occupying its oil-rich areas, uh, factor into Syria's fuel shortages? It's monstrous.
5: It's monstrous because the vast majority of Syria's oil and gas is in that northeastern sector that the United States occupied. And as we recall, at the end of ISIS, the Syrian army and the US army raced to grab the oil fields and the Russians were helping the Syrians and and 200 Russian soldiers were killed because the Americans bombed the crap out of them when they tried to grab the oil. And, And America took it because they wanted that oil First of all, they wanted to deny it to Assad in order to starve the Syrians and put them in the situation that they are in today. And secondly, they needed it to fund their proxy military, the Kurdish YPG, and now the Syrian Defense the Democratic Forces. But So that money is, is paying for the American occupation, in a sense, and funding this proxy army, but it's also serving to gain leverage. That's the way people in Washington put it, on Assad. The problem with the sanctions regime it hasn't changed any of the policies of President Assad the 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 pol you know the political architecture in Syria has not changed Assad is not making any concessions to the United States because of it so it's become an instrument it's become a collective punishment that hurts the most vulnerable people in Syria and that's women and children and today when people don't have houses and they're sitting outside in the freezing cold that that's who's getting hurt is the poor, because the people who've got a few pennies to rub together are getting other apartments and are being helped by you know people they have outside. But it's the poor that are getting hurt. It's not Assad. He's eating three meals a day. And there's a there's a lot of literature that suggests that these authoritarian regimes strengthen because of sanctions, because everybody becomes totally dependent on the handouts mm-hmm. from the government.
0: Also, they can blame the the foreign powers that are imposing the sanctions, right? They become a yes. convenient, bad, and justifiable bad guy.
5: Yes, it it is a justifiable. Now there is a lot of other things. You know, obviously there's corruption and there's authoritarianism in the, the Lebanese banking system collapsed and the currency is, you know, there were just there's a heap load of problems in Syria. I don't want to deny that and say that it's American sanctions, but American sanctions are a very important very important aspect and we've seen this in country after country whether it was iraq or whether it was iran the currency collapses debanking you know international trade is important and when you stop international trade and you forbid companies from moving in it's very difficult and and it's not you know america can say well we're not stopping anybody from sending aid that's humanitarian aid in and and they're they're correct in the sense that they're not saying it to people but my bank every every company i know that i've tried to work with to get anything to syria has a protocol because they read ofac they read the treasury department's warnings and they wrote up a long and complicated protocol on which countries you cannot trade with and we will not allow banking services or anything else to go through to syria if you try to put go fund me And you put the word Syria in GoFundMe, you get an automatic answer back saying you can't do that. We can't trade with Syria. So all these companies have already put in place these very complicated protocols, and they've educated all their people on where you can send money and where you can't. So even though Washington says, oh, we're not stopping that aid, no company is going to do it. Lloyds of London isn't going to insure those ships. No ship is going to go to Syria. How are you going to convince them to do this to change all their protocols and to rearrange it you're not because they know those sanctions are coming back they're going to snap back as soon as you know this is out of the news and um it's just not it's not going to happen so there is a a massive detrimental effect from the sanctions despite Washington trying to you know deflect any criticism
1: and nobody in Syria voted for the sanctions uh, voted for the bureaucrats in washington who are imposing sanctions on them and denying them life-saving aid which speaks to i think the fact that the authoritarian regimes are in washington as well and denying other people the basics they need to live but on that point you made it you pointed out that the us sees occupying syria and taking its fuel as leverage well let's go to a clip right. of a senior u.s official admitting just that this is dana Struhl, who is now a top pentagon official handling the Middle East, so countries like Syria, speaking back in 2019. And this is what she said about how the U.S. occupying Syria and sanctioning Syria gives it leverage over Syria.
2: The United States still had compelling forms of leverage on the table to shape an outcome that was more conducive and protective of U.S. interests. And we identified four. So the first one was the one-third of Syrian territory that was owned via the US military with its local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, this was a light footprint on the US military, only about a thousand troops over the course of the Syria Study Group's report. And then the tens of thousands of of forces, both Kurdish and Arab, under the Syrian Democratic Forces. And that one-third of Syria is the resource-rich, it's the economic powerhouse of Syria. So where the hydrocarbons are which obviously is very much in the public debate here in Washington these days, as well as the agricultural powerhouse. But we argued that it wasn't just about this one third of Syrian territory that the US military and our military presence owned, both to fight ISIS and also as leverage for affecting the the overall political process for the broader Syrian conflict. There were three other areas of leverage. One is political and diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime. So holding the line on diplomatic isolation, preventing embassies from going back into Damascus, Two is the economic sanctions architecture. So some of this is part of the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration on Iran, but there's a whole suite of both executive and congressional sanctions on Syria and Bashar al-Assad, both for human rights abuses in Syria and to the backers of Assad for their activities in support of him in Syria. And three was reconstruction aid. So the United States remains the overall largest single donor of humanitarian aid to Syrians both inside Syria and refugees outside of Syria. And there was some stabilization assistance in the part of Syria that was liberated from ISIS and controlled via the Syrian Democratic Forces in northern and eastern Syria. The rest of Syria though is, is rubble. And what the Russians want and what Assad wants is economic reconstruction. Um, and that is something that the United States can basically hold a card on via the international financial institutions and our cooperation with the Europeans. So we argued that absent behavioral changes by the Assad regime, we should hold the line on preventing reconstruction aid and technical expertise from going back into Syria.
1: So that's Dana Struhl in 2019. Now she's uh, occupying a senior Pentagon position for the Middle East under Joe Biden. Uh, Do you think that the U.S. policy is the same today in 2023 as she outlined in 2019, uh, owning Syria uh, to give itself, owning one third of Syria via the military occupation and holding a line on reconstruction aid to keep Syria uh, in rubble as she brags about uh, is that still the policy today and do you think it will stay like this in the aftermath of this devastating earthquake
5: um, yes it is the policy today I, I don't think there's any doubt about that uh, U.S. continues to deny Syria its own oil it continues to deny most of the agricultural goods that are there the, this oil is being shipped out of Syria through Iraq which takes you know it's a very cumbersome way to move Syria's oil because there are pipelines that go from these fields to Banias and other government refineries, which then have traditionally refined it and sent it to the areas that need it. This is very detrimental. And it's about leverage to try to get, you know, if you continued her speech on, she would explain that this leverage is going to be used to change the political landscape of Syria. And um, you know, ultimately she believes that Assad can be driven out of Syria. And and that's you know there there are a lot of people who support this, you know, and and un- unfortunately, a lot of the Syrian opposition supports these sanctions too. And that's because of this terrible civil war and the, their only way of getting home is to get Assad out. And so they're willing to do just anything that they can, even if it means this suffering of the Syrian other Syrian people because they've been suffering too. And the problem is, you know, i can I can understand the moral dilemma here, but the problem is that, Assad is not leaving. We spent 13 years arming all kinds of people, good and bad actors, to try to leverage, to try to make the Syrian army come to the United States and beg for a solution which would which would force them to get rid of Assad. They didn't do it. They went to Russia. They went to Iran. And they won a the war. And largely because the Syrian opposition spooked America, turned into ISIS and al-Qaeda, and America dropped their support for it, as so did the Saudis and other people. That's not going to change. There isn't going to be an opposition that comes up because of these sanctions and drives out the Assad regime in the same way that there's not going to be widespread demonstrations. And this this is in some ways the dilemma of trying to unseat these authoritarian regimes because the people are fragmented and they're poor and they're desperately need the state services that only the state can give them education they need electricity they need you know passports renewed all the stuff that they are totally dependent on the state so so they're not going to overthrow this government. And that's the that's the you know, that's what everybody is coming to that conclusion already. The UAE has made that conclusion. CC just called Egypt just called Assad. The Turks are now, the Turks, the biggest opponent, are now, you know, in, in dialogue for diplomacy. And the Saudis have made noises in that direction and say, you know, we're we're not doing it because of America and we want some political concessions from Assad, but we're open to dialogue. And America's trying to keep their foot on the brake and, and make sure that this doesn't happen, thinking that they're going to still get some kind of leverage. And it's just not going to happen. And, and that's partly because Biden withdrew from Afghanistan, and he got mud on his face for it. And it was, you know, it's something that Republicans are going to take to the bank in elections. And if he withdraws from Syria, which is what the correlation would be they are people are going to get hurt and he's going to get more mud on his face. And even though the Republicans, by and large, want to withdraw from Syria, they're going to pretend that they didn't and that this was terrible. So Biden's going to kick it down the road because he's not going to do two of those in one term. And, and America needs to stay. And that means they need to have this isolation campaign. They need to keep Assad down. And, and that's their policy. And it's, it sells well in Washington, unfortunately.
0: What mistakes, by the way, do you think uh, Biden made in the execution of pulling troops out of Afghanistan? Or do you think it was inevitable that that he would be slammed for it?
5: You know, I think it's inevitable that he was going to be slammed for it. Everybody in America misunderstood what was going on. You know, every authority, every American military leader that had spent years on the Afghan beat. Said that their regime was going to last six months, a year. You know, everybody blew hot air at him because they they were is all full of wishful thinking. So there was no good time to get out.
0: Mm-hmm. It reminds me a bit the, the sanctions uh reminds me a bit of the situation with Cubans who so I'm I'm not gonna generalize no, it here. Very, it's, here very, but...
5: it's 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 interest groups in the United States, it's domestic.
0: Right. It's interest groups and also people who are more interested in this is the generalization part, but some people are much more interested in inflicting harm on leadership or governments than they are on the quality of life of the people living under them. And uh, even though it doesn't even affect the leadership, as you've pointed out, it's not still going to eat three meals a day. But I feel like there's some kind of vindictive nature to some of the people in some of this.
5: Yes, there is, and even if for those people who don't see it as vindictive, they see it as punishing a bad actor,
4: right?
5: And that not letting him get off the hook for sure. you know fighting this brutal war—that's it thinking. It's yeah. just—it's not. That's not who it's hurting. It's hurting in these poor people on the ground who don't have electricity and can't reconstruct and don't have schools. And you know, in the long run, it's just bad policy because the only way the us the only way we know to promote democracy that's solid that's not going to just collapse like it did in tunisia or something in the long run is if people have three square meals a day they can go to school they can get educated and you have a real middle class that begins to make demands on a leadership and that can stand on its own and we're going backwards you know in places like iran or syria or iraq or lebanon you know people are getting st- Dumber. I mean, I hate to put it in those terms, but they're getting less educated, they're getting more desperate, and they're they're learning to stab their neighbor in the back and not to be to compromise because it becomes a, a dog-eat-dog world in this situation where you have collapsing GDP and a collapsing currency. You have to fight for every little shred that you get. And that's not the way to promote democracy. Democracy requires cooperation and a willingness to compromise with your neighbors and to see everybody as one common family and community. Otherwise, if you don't accept the sort of common rules of a constitution, you're not going to have a democracy. And so by reducing the GDP of these countries and, and and impoverishing people, you're you're just going to push off the horizon of possible democracy promotion. That's that's the, the real truth, and you are ultimately pursuing a very vindictive policy, which is we're going to punish Russia, we're going to punish Iran, we're going to punish those people who are our enemies, who've helped Assad, and, um, and if it turns into a quagmire for them, so much the better.
1: And before the Dirty War, Syria had, among the highest rates of education, food self-sufficiency, and healthcare in the Middle East. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, had there not been a dirty war where so many foreign sponsors spent all this money funneling the country with weapons, do you think that there was uh, the possibility there for the political system opening up uh, and becoming less authoritarian?
5: Assad, like so many dictators, whether it's in China or elsewhere, he promised, when he came to power in 2000, took power from his father who died he promised Syrians a chicken in every pot, that he was going to modernize Syria. And he went about you know, opening up the internet, allowing for banking system, stock exchange, new hotels, all these imports that had been banned got to come in. So the upper classes of Syria got to live a much better life, one that they'd been seeing on TV for other people having these all these imports. And now they could do the same thing. Of course, it created a lot of class differences, but he wasn't going to Compromise politically, he was going to maintain power, and this, unfortunately, is the dilemma of a dilemma of a minoritarian regime, which we have so many in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq, and and we used to have in Lebanon, is that the Alawites, who are twelve percent a religious group, and other religious groups that are that are allied with them, like the Christians and the Druze and so forth, are willing to fight like mad in order to keep Sunni Islam from taking power and we saw this in the civil war because isis and al-qaeda loomed up and looked very threatening to any minority there are almost no minorities left in rebel held territories because they were driven out some were forced to convert as as isis did in in the Druze territories but also al-qaeda and other islamists they they treated them just really shabbily and and kidnapped so It it wasn't – the Syrian war became much more brutal than it had to be because of these ethnic divisions in the country. And they're ones that continue to today, and it makes it so hard to find the right policy um, because somebody is going to lose in this environment. And the worse the economy becomes, the more resentment really builds up between these various groups and the less possibility it is to heal those wounds. And that's what's really, you know, in the American Civil War, it was reconstruction and rebuilding that that really healed the wounds, the wounds and um and mitigated some of the anger. And you know, that anger still boils underneath. It doesn't you know it's not too far to, hard to find it in places in the United States. And we're you know we're hundred fifty years away from it. Um so it's yeah. it's a delicate process
1: when it comes to the. Uh areas worst hit by the earthquake Aleppo and Latakia talk to us about these places and, and what they're going through now
5: well you know let me let me um just do read you a few statistics um in Latakia for example 506 people yesterday uh were known to be dead and almost a thousand injured 102 buildings had collapsed um in Jebli, which is a town next town down on the coast Uh, smaller town, there were 250 people dead, 171 injured, 120 buildings had collapsed. 248 schools have collapsed in Syria, 71 in Aleppo, 50 in Latakia, 27 in Hama, 99 in Tartus. These are way, way down the coast, close to Beirut. The damage is only, and we only know it, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg because It's very hard to get this kind of information out because electricity is not working. Internet's not working. So much has collapsed that that we don't we're going to find much worse statistics um, that are coming out. And and that's the already 50 percent of the hospitals and clinics in Syria had been either destroyed or or woefully damaged during the Civil War. They haven't reconstructed. And now this is, you know, they're, they're just there's no facilities to take care of them Uh, and this is you know it's a terrible situation
0: we have um let's I thought this is very short but we can just look at some of this drone footage because I think sometimes it's easier to get a sense of the enormity of something when you see it
5: the devastation is tremendous and you know people say oh we can bring some in from Turkey but almost no aid is going to come in from Turkey there's one road Babel Hawa these are the rebel-held areas, and you know that aid is getting. The Turks need it. I've have two Turkish friends who are trying to see if I have any connections with the State Department to get their people out of terrible places. They're American citizens, and and um, you know everything has collapsed in 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 Antakya and places near Syria. Just widespread devastation, and hospitals have come down. So that aid. Turkey's not going to be sending that aid to Syria and NGOs aren't going to drive a mile before they're going to be overwhelmed with the, the troubles many of the roads you look at the roads on those videos you'll see these giant fault lines and um the roads have been destroyed going into Syria so they they've got to be quickly repatched up um the airport in Antakya the runways were ruined now they probably in a day or two they can fix those up but it's um it it really has been devastating and so the the aid that's likely to get to Syria is going to be very delayed and by the time it does uh, many people will have died under the rubble and there's not enough moving equipment you know this is where things like sanctions have had a terrible effect because you can't order a tractor from or moving equipment from Caterpillar or from any of these other big companies because they won't they won't sell to Syria and um you know whether that's considered aid or not. I don't know if it's considered aid. We we just don't have any clarity from the gov- government, which says, "Oh, we're not, we're not stopping emergency aid." What is emergency aid? We don't know what it is, and and companies don't know what it is, either. And they're not going to change their, you know, they're not going to do this stuff. So that's the, and you know, it's
1: a very sticky problem. Can you talk about the dispute? Uh, that's uh, arisen over that one internationally allowed border crossing uh between Syria and Turkey for aid uh, Syria and Russia want aid also sent through Damascus uh the U.S and its allies insist on just that one border crossing between Turkey and, and Syria
5: you know the bottom line is that every actor in Syria is using food as a
0: weapon and to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiots.substack.com. That was a very thorough discussion. I feel like I learned a lot from that.
1: I mean, he's one of the top experts on Syria in the U.S. And yes. so it was very informative to hear from him.
0: It was. And uh, you should follow him at Joshua underscore Landis and also his work at the Quincy Institute, where he's a fellow.
1: That's right. And if you want to sign up for bonus content, including the extended version of this interview, go to usefulidiots.substack.com and find us on Locals as well. And we'll see you next week.
0: We'll see you next week. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash Useful Idiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Useful Idiot Pod and use the hashtag Useful Idiots Pod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.